friends, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder. And today I am recording and reaching out to you from my COVID-19 bunker, aka my home, on one of the darkest, dreariest spring days. Even my new 3,000 busy bee neighbors are hiding inside today. But I am so excited to introduce you to Kat Wilson. Kat is the assistant director of the Hudson Valley Additive Manufacturing Center. It's a 3D printing lab on the SUNY New Paltz campus and a favorite haunt for the digital design and fabrication students there. So Kat is going to teach us all about 3D printing, which is so interesting. Plus, We'll also learn how this petite second-generation Cuban-American master of fine arts landed this, her dream steam job, at the intersection of art and engineering. And we'll hit on how she navigates some of her own work obstacles and manages burnout. I also want to give a massive shout-out to the entire HVAMC team, which includes Kat, Dan Friedman, Aaron Nelson, and intern Rachel Icegrouper, who immediately answered the call for more protective face shields for healthcare workers at the beginning of this crisis. By leveraging a check design, they actually repurposed donated, now obsolete, 8.5 by 11 inch transparency films, the kind that used to be used in laser printers, copiers, and overhead projectors. So I want to ask all of you listening in this moment, wherever you are in time and space, to take a pause silently and say thank you and send some grateful vibes to the team at HVAMC and to all the healthcare workers doing everything that they can do to keep us safe and healthy. Go ahead. I'll wait. Voila. Now let's meet Kat. I have so many questions about what you do because 3D printing is something that I sort of nebulously get, but not really. So this is a super exciting day for me personally, but I have a funny feeling you're going to have a lot to share for all of the guests as well. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. <laughs> I enjoy it. I do it every day. <laughs> So these days, you're the assistant director at the Hudson Valley Additive Manufacturing Center, whew, a lot yeah. of words, at SUNY New Paltz. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And I guess also, is there an acronym? Are you the AMC by any chance? So we are the HVAMC, okay. and that's the acronym that we go with, which is still a mouthful. <laughs> um, when, uh, when I first got this position, I think that the job description that my boss, Dan Friedman, showed me in an email, it, it was pretty funny because he was like, oh, the, the title of the job is bigger than you are, which is <laughs> pretty accurate. Um, I am also very short. I'm just over four foot 11, but barely. <laughs> I'm just under. I round up. So There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I got this job from straight out from grad school, actually. So I came to SUNY New Paltz for grad school um, in the metals program here. And I met Dan, and Dan was the dean of science and engineering. I didn't initially know that when I first met him, but the story of 
how I kind of fell into this job and how the center has really grown has been a series of interesting and kind of haphazard occurrences, I guess. <laughs> um, Love these kinds of stories. Yeah. <laughs> so as a graduate student, I was working in a small 3D printing lab on campus um, where we had one 3D printer at the time and eventually it multiplied to two. I, w- I was working there and towards the beginning of my second year, my boss at the time asked me if I would be willing to go up to the uh, New York State Fair with the Dean of Science and Engineering and the Interim Dean of Art at the time. And I had no clue who these people were. <laughs> All I knew is that I would be going to the State Fair to talk about 3D printing with a 3D printer. It was, I think, like a four-hour drive one way. And so I was going to be trapped in a car. <laughs> and <laughs> I, am, I am not the most... Um, social person. I tend to be a bit shy. One thing that I try to always force myself to do is to do something that kind of pushes me outside of my comfort zone. So I was like, wow, this really sounds kind of terrifying. So let's do it. Um, (laughs) So I ended up going up with them. I met Dan that way. And we spent the day at the fair setting up a printer, having people ask us about printers. And this was in 2013. It was a good, you know, a great day overall. And we kind of nerded out about a bunch of 3D printing stuff, um, about metallurgy, about building things and design and how design plays into all of this. And uh, Dan is, is a chemist by background. So we ended up coming back and... After having met Dan, he kind of would pop into the 3D printing lab every once in a while. And so that's kind of how our relationship really started, where we started kind of talking more and, you know, asking each other questions about how does this work? How does that work? So when I graduated, Dan um, asked if I would be interested in staying on and helping him run the HVAMC. So I was like, that sounds great because I'm graduating with a master's in art, which is terrifying. Um, <laughs> absolutely take pretty much any job you offer me. Um, but also, it was kind of a dream job, you know? I actually, I do have one funny story that Dan Friedman will probably absolutely murder me for saying, but it's too good to not share. Ooh, now, you, considering he was the person who connected us for this yes. to make this podcast, like, I... Lay it on the table, lady. <laughs> right. So, so he's, he's actually, I can totally see his face right now. But anyway, so I think, <laughs> I think one of um, the first times when Dan realized that I kind of knew what I was talking about. I mean, he's, he's always, he's very, very um, supportive and he's very good at, you know, listening to people and, and being very understanding. But when I think things clicked was... Um, he was working on a project which was to replicate a bottle. It, it was like a, um, a glass bottle, basically. And okay. he was determined, absolutely determined, to get a digital file for this bottle. And so his first instinct, as with most people when they're first learning this, which is totally understandable, is to scan it. And scanning is something that is a little bit of like a dark art, Um, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, And so he was determined to scan it. And 
I kept telling him, you know, you really shouldn't scan that. You should take out a set of calipers, measure it, and enter the information into a software program. And Dan was like, well, I think I'll think I'll try scanning it. So he tried scanning it. Then he tried, because it's glass and shiny and transparent, he tried painting it black. And then he put polka dots on it. And then one day, <laughs> which are all normal things that you would do. And then one day he just came into the lab and he was absolutely frazzled carrying this bottle that now had polka dots all over it and was just like, okay, so how does this measuring thing work? <laughs> so I sat down and we went through it and I think we built the bottle in like, I don't know, a matter of like five, 10 minutes um, walking through it. Stop. It was, it was great. It was like a really awesome experience because, you know, I was able to, Dan is like really determined and he's super like, you know, eager to, to do things and try things. He and I are similar in the sense that we're both very stubborn. But when it gets to a certain point, it's like, all right, now you can let me in on whatever the secret is. Like, <laughs> so that's, that's my damn story. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I love it, too, because it's like when you're talking about him coming from like a chemistry background and like in this role of like science and engineering now, right? Like you can see that approach kind of coming through. And then, you know, one thing that we haven't, super talked about. We, I mean, we talked about you coming from an art background a little bit, but I imagine there's something about like the tactile and almost, dare I say, more mechanical aspect of it. Oh, absolutely. Right? right? Yeah. Like you're going to get your hands on something. Mm -hmm. as, like he was trying to, to do all these different things to like. Right, right. And it's, and I think that for most people, you know, if you, if you think of it in terms of um, replicating a, like a text document, right? The average person is going to walk up to a scanner, scan it into the computer and go from there. Whereas what I was telling him was completely counterintuitive, which was basically we'll retype the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I can totally understand. And even though Dan does come from um, a chemistry background, he does build a lot of, of objects and he does have like that tinkering, like he built his own printer, which I thought was so cool. Cause I never, I've never built my own printer <laughs> and he was like, Oh yeah, I totally built it. And it, you know, it, it does this, that and the other. And so it's, it's really cool um, to have, have a boss that's super interested in this stuff and is really, uh, you know, excited to kind of play and, and experiment with things. Oh, I can totally imagine. I mean, it also just sounds like being open to different approaches too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Kat, maybe it makes sense to kind of pause in your story a little bit here. Can you talk about what 3D printing is? Absolutely. So 3D printing um, is a way of manufacturing. Um, it's a way of building something. And in the most basic terms, what you're doing is you're building objects layer by layer. Um, so there's about seven or so different 3D printing technologies, um, you know, that build in all different kinds of ways. But the one thing they all have in common is that you're essentially like, imagine taking a carrot, right? And just chopping the carrot up into tiny little slices and then stacking the, recreating those slices by stacking the carrot one slice on top of the other. Um, that's and these are what, tiny, like, micro slices, right? Right, 
Right. So the average slice, it varies, but on average, we'd say it's about um, two tenths of a millimeter. So they're tiny. So this is where I am super rusty in this, but the words that are like flying into my brain right now are differential calculus. (laughs) So I am not at all a math person. (laughs) I will say that straight off the bat, but basically you know, one way that we like to describe it is you're trying to imagine what two tenths of a millimeter is, which the average person's like, what? <laughs> How big is a millimeter? Um, it's about a tenth of a millimeter is the thickness of the average human hair. So if you take a single human, a strand of human hair and you stack it up on itself, then you'll get, you know, an object that's built out of all these human hairs. That's how thin these layers are. And so, and typically it's, it's printed out of a plastic that gets extruded just like a hot glue gun, but it's being kind of smushed down against this platform, laid super smooth, and then it prints directly on top of itself. How cool is this? I, like, I feel like, oh my God, there's a million questions (laughs) bubbling up in me. I get excited about these technologies and like especially the people that know all of these like tiny little facts about this so this is super cool so it sounds like when you're building things with plastic I mean this is I assume hot plastic like a hot glue gun correct and these layers are printing like so fast that it's almost seamless right like it's not like these like individual layers it's just sort of happening quickly right it it is for the most part um it's a lot like uh you know, kind of like coil building pottery as well is another way of thinking of it. But the process in general is relatively slow because of how thin the layers are. But what it's doing is it's applying the plastic at an optimum temperature and an optimum speed. So as the plastic is extruded, it is very hot. So as it touches the layer beneath it, it is just hot enough to bond with the layer below it right? Heat and bond that layer below it, and then also cool rapidly. So you have to take a lot of the material properties into account as you kind of design for different printing applications. Okay, got it. So what I'm hearing at a high level is it's highly customized depending on exactly what you're building. Correct. I'm sure you've probably done, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of projects at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. What are some applications? Like where would people see this in action? So it can be used in a lot of different ways. A lot of the ways that it's been used, um, 3D printing has been around for quite a while, since around 1989. Um, It's just been around in the background. So a lot of the, the things that have been made using printing are things like molds, jigs, and fixtures which is basically things to help make things. So if you need to drill a hole at a specific angle, you can 3D print a jig to hold your part at that specific angle so that you can drill it. That's the most traditional approach. What we're seeing now is that 3D printing is kind of infiltrating into our everyday kind of lives certainly mine but um, <laughs> for real right, exactly but you can imagine that a lot of toys are 3d printed um, I know my 
cousin's kid just got a, a light. It's a moonlight and it's totally 3D printed, but it's a commercial object that she bought. How would you tell? Like you can probably tell. Would the average person be able to tell? I don't think they would necessarily. They advertise that as 3D printing, but if, if you were to feel ridges running down, if it looked like it was almost carved out of a piece of wood as far as the grain. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you see something like that, that's, to, that's a pretty strong indication that it was 3D printed. I'm with you. Yeah. So yeah, so we see it in that. We see it a lot in art, installations and sculptures. And we see it also, uh, what, what we personally have seen in a lot in is actually with like uh, medical applications specifically, and this is kind of the biggest impact, but specifically for pre-surgical models or for educational purposes in, um, in the medical field. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you're printing something that looks like a liver before a doctor has to go in and do a procedure on a liver. A better way of putting it, I guess, would be we're printing your liver before a doctor has to do surgery on you. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't actually print organic matter, but we do print materials that simulate that. So for example, if you need to cut into cartilage or something like that as a surgeon, we can kind of get a, a plastic material that's close to that. We don't produce the files in-house. We actually work with a company called MediPrint. Brent Chanin is the, uh, the head of that company and he's amazing. But what he'll do is if he needs a really fast turnaround time um, or doing something experimental, he'll come to us, we'll print out the part and then ship it to the hospital next day or you know, in two days, certainly before the surgery. So we've done this for aortas, we've done this for hearts, um, things like that. So how is that scanned or measured? That is measured by CT scan or MRI scan. Kind of another funny Dan story. Dan went... Um, <laughs> Dan, I hope he didn't paint polka dots on someone's A. No, no. no. <laughs> Dan went and he um, had his shoulder scanned. He got really excited because he came into work and he's like, guys, I have my shoulder. <laughs> and we were like, what? <laughs> so... Uh, the doctor uh, gave him the scan file. And so he brought it in and he talked to Brent from MediPrint and was like, hey, Brent, do you think that you could make this something that we could print? And of course, Brent being like a magician was like, sure. So he converted it and we have a printout of Dan's shoulder <laughs> in the lab, <laughs> um, which is a little weird, but also cool because we were like, you know, you can totally save your own MRI files or CAT scan files and you can, you know, Brent can convert them and we can print them. So it's pretty wild. So everything that you just shared is super exciting to me. And here's a little context why. You know, those metal testicles that people mm -hmm. hang from the back of a pickup truck. Yep. Usually they're on a pickup truck. Uh, I, I yep. believe they're called truck nuts. Um, is the, mm -hmm. is I the believe urban, they are, yes. I believe that would be the urban dictionary term. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of blowing my mind because for years, every time I saw those, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be hilarious <laughs> if I made a metal version of the female clitoris mm -hmm. and then replaced the truck nuts with a clitoris, like with the person that came out and got in their truck actually even know what that was oh my god like, that, that was, was my funny. sort of like that was sort of like my art trespassing 
I don't know. It's probably larceny. I guess if I left the truck nuts, maybe it wouldn't be. I feel like this touches on so many things, but the fact that you could potentially scan your female anatomy, mm-hmm. turn it into at least a plastic version. I don't know. Can you print on metal? We actually can now. We can print metal. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you, might, you might be like helping a bucket list. I realized. <laughs> but, um, Absolutely. <laughs> but like I always felt like, I wouldn't even have a clue where or how or like how that could be made. And now you're telling me like you guys did that for fun, just like after Dan went to a doctor's office. Yeah, pretty pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm going to file this away for like bucket list item, you know, number 97. <laughs> right. Just, you know, keep it in your back pocket. <laughs> because you just solved one of like life's greatest mysteries for me. How does one even do that? And literally, I just stumbled into this conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to you and Dan for pioneering something. Of course. <laughs> ridiculous for me, potentially. That's awesome. <laughs> so anyways, mm-hmm. back to real life applications that are not screwball. <laughs> what are some of the other things that you've you've seen or are there any projects that have really touched you in some way? Yeah, there's there's been a few um, that have been, you know, pretty fun. The medical ones are always kind of terrifying, but we did do one of the very first projects. Actually, this is a really old project, but it's still near and dear. We worked with uh, Woodstock Farm Sanctuary where they have, they take on in a lot of um, farm animals that are no longer wanted or, you know, whatever the case may be. And they had a, or have a sheep named Felix and Felix was missing the lower part of his front leg. Yeah. So he was like a three and a half leg sheep. Right. Exactly. So a lot of three-legged animals, you typically see um, the ones that are more successful are the ones who are missing their hind leg. Right. Because a lot of the weight, if you think of like the neck and the head, that's all towards the front. So the back end is usually used for, you know, more inertia, right? Pushing off and and things like that. Um, But you don't have the chest cavity and the neck and the head kind of overhanging or or anything. So typically when you have a three-legged animal, if it's missing part or all of the leg in the front, you you pretty much need some kind of um, prosthetic. They reached out to us and they were working with a prosthetist who does human um, prosthetics. In working with him and with the uh, farm animal sanctuary, we were able to get a cast of Felix's stump and scan that and then take that information and create a, a prosthetic limb for him. And, you know, we went through a couple of different iterations, but this was a really interesting and kind of challenging thing to take on. It was, I think it was one of the first projects I worked on in 2014 when I first started. It was pretty cool though, because they would send a, you know, they sent us a video of him walking on the leg and, you know, we, we learned a lot about how, um, how much pressure or, you know, how much stress does this need to take? And, you know, if you're out in the barnyard, you're potentially dragging your uh, prosthetic limb against things because you don't get feedback, right? 
So, so right. It absorbs all this extra or strange wear and tear. Correct. Yeah. So how do, how do you design for that? You know, with humans in a lot of ways, it's easier because you can be like, well, how does that feel? (laughs) You know, and with a sheep, it's like, well, I don't know how Ah. (laughs) exactly, exactly. He's just like, uh, you know, and, and Felix was not thrilled with any of the process. He was just like, I'm done. (laughs) You know, but he was able, he was able to like get a little, a little bit of a, you know, skip in there and kind of, uh, move quickly on it, which was great. And then we ended up um, casting a silicone insert so that it would kind of absorb a little bit of shock and stuff like that. So that was a really fun one. It was a very big learning experience because there were all of these unknowns. I have learned that I definitely want to avoid working on prosthetics as much as I can <laughs> because there's a ton that goes into them. And working with a prosthetist makes it significantly easier. But there's a lot of you know, a lot of questions that you need to anticipate, right? Especially as, you know, I, I don't have any prosthetic limbs or anything, but, you know, you can almost imagine it if you're wearing heels or if you're wearing um, eyeglasses. You can consider those prosthetics in a sense. So, you know, you have to consider, well, what makes these function, right? What makes you want to use these items? What makes you feel comfortable in them? So it was, it was really interesting to, to work on that project. It's funny, like the way you were just like firing out questions. I think I was thinking about those, right? Like I I tend to lean in terms of UX design. Like I would still like consider myself a generalist or even like a strategist in that field. But it's the research part of the process that's so interesting. So like what you're just describing, my little tail is almost wagging if I had one, (laughs) where it's kind of like, oh my God, there's so many aspects. Like even if you think of something like like eyeglasses or a, a shoe, well, right. who's wearing it and how are they wearing it? And what is their mindset when they're wearing? What are they thinking about it? What is it giving back to them for information? What do we need to, I mean, there's so many ways to look at it. Like mm-hmm. your job sounds so amazing to me. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's definitely like working at a playground in a lot of ways. <laughs> Because, yeah, there are lots of these questions of, I think a lot of what happens with 3D printing when people think of it and when people begin to realize the possibilities is that the possibilities are massive, right? You, you can make just about anything. The question is, should you make those things? And is it the appropriate medium to make them in? I can only imagine the ethics because I feel like I read something somewhere. I mean people are trying to like 3D print guns and weapons, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you have to think of all of the ethical ramifications and I would say externalities of it, right? Right. And so one thing that I would say on on the whole gun subject is just that um, if like a 3D printed gun is actually like the worst way to make a gun, (laughs) like (laughs) I'm just going to throw that out there like, there are much easier ways <laughs> that are much more efficient. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things like that. And the other thing is um, we're very conscious of not wanting to produce objects made out of plastic that are going to be around forever um, just because there's that idea as well. And, you know, do you really need this item? Or 
you know, what's the life cycle of this item going to be? Are you going to recycle it? Are you going to compost it? Are you going, you know, so these are all questions that come into it in addition to just like, will it be strong enough? Will it withstand sunlight for three years or whatever the case may be? Oh, great point. So how do you screen for that? I imagine you've designed a process to have to really like flesh that information out of people before you're just hidden print, right? So what we do is, um, well, so the HVAMC in general, we work not only with students, but we also work with clients, right? Which are basically people from the community, uh, mostly regional people who either work for companies or are entrepreneurs or whatever the case may be. So we always advise on the best material selection. We don't do a ton of, of screening, as it were, but we do say things like, we'll, we'll ask a series of questions. What's the maximum temperature that you know this object is going to encounter? Um, is it going to be hit with any abrasive? Is it, is it going to be an external, like outside in the real world object, or is it just for prototyping? Whenever, um, and by, by prototyping, I mostly mean um, form and fit, right? Like, does, okay. it, does it fit the the uh, application. Whenever possible, what we try to do is we we go to print things in a material called PLA, which for the fancy name is polylactic acid. And PLA <laughs> is basically made out of things like sugar beets, um, you know, anything high, like potatoes, anything high in starch. So it's a plastic that has a very low melting temperature, which is great for 3D printing, but because it's made from these starchy organic objects, it can be composted. What? Yeah. So um, it does need to be sent to an industrial composter, but because we're on a campus, all of the food waste from the campus goes to an industrial composter. I was going to say you have one, right? In New Paltz, right? Exactly. Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure we do. Yeah. So we, what we do is we just, we take all of our scrap and we bring it over to the industrial composter along with the food waste and it all gets churned up. And I believe it's like within 90 or so days, it's back to organic matter. Whenever we try to advise a client, if it is a prototype, if it is for form and fit, if it's the first time they're printing anything out, we recommend that they print that material. It's also cheaper, which helps. Yeah, yeah, so that's one thing that we definitely encourage. And the same with students. Whenever students are learning how to 3D print, um, a lot of mistakes are made, which are valuable. (laughs) (laughs) Mistakes are great things to have. We encourage mistakes to a degree because I think you learn more from those. Absolutely. So so when we have students working on projects, that's how they start learning is they start with this material that it's almost um, the most forgiving material because it, you know, your mistake won't be around for a billion years. (laughs) You can get rid of it, which I think is, is a good thing. And then, you know, if they need a specific plastic for a specific application that might need to be recycled or worst case is going to be around for a while at least they have practiced and now they know for a fact that that object is going to fit that application amazing because i was wondering about that you know when you take something to a photocopier if you mess it up you lose a piece of paper but it's that's not going to be the thing that brings the environmental end of days for us right But yeah, like considering the types of materials that you're working with, like 
and those those errors are also really expensive because what are we talking just in terms of like I mean I guess like when I think printer I'm envisioning something probably akin to like an older printer like from back in like the 70s or 80s <laughs> that were you know like the size of a conference table or something and then like I'm also thinking like how much do these things cost like what what are we even talking about in the ballpark? So there's a huge range. Um, so printers in general can be, I mean, the smallest quote unquote desktop printer is probably um, the size of an older, larger toaster oven or microwave, right? Okay. So it's around that size, that footprint, and it can print something that is typically about the size of a tissue box. Okay they only go up from there. <laughs> um, I'm sure dramatically. Yes. Um, there are printers. There's a printer that I saw that I could literally like live in. It was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> the price range is huge as well. I mean, you can do something super cost effective where it's under a thousand dollars and you can build it at home, um, which is one of the things that Dan did, or you can go and get like a mid range printer, which is around, probably in the $5,000 range. Um, that's like, you know, intro to mid-level. And then, you know, industrial printers are going to cost like a house. Like it's going to be expensive. Um, you know, there's a couple printers that are on the market for like half a million dollars, a million dollars. It, it does grow quite exponentially. Um, but again, in those applications, those types of printers are typically being used for very, very high resolution or the material properties. So um, what, what we try to do here is really focus on the, the practical application of um, what you would use that printer for. Got it. So you're looking at what are the students that are using the 3D printing? Do you call it a lab, a studio? Yeah. Yep, okay. lab. You're thinking about what are they using it for? What are the common clients that we have coming in and what are they need absolutely and kind of making your decisions based off of that right so that's how kind of we we go about picking the equipment things that people have asked for in the past so we had a lot of questions about well can you print in metal and for the longest time we had to say no but we recently within the past year bought a metal 3d printer so now we can print in metal so where there's a need and where we, we hear a lot of questions, that's when we're, we're kind of looking into, oh, well, what can this technology really do? So that's one of the, the main drivers. Another one of the main drivers is what's out there in the industry. Like if, if we send a student out and they're going to get a job and part of their job is going to be to print on a piece of equipment, which is quite common, especially in the engineering world, are they going to be comfortable with that? What is some of the equipment that they are going to encounter and how do, how do we best prepare and teach them about that equipment? Oh, got it. Got it. That makes sense. So who are the students that are typically coming in? Because I'm hearing you were using a 3D lab mm -hmm. when you were an art student. And then I'm also hearing 
you're preparing engineering students besides like clients who who's actually using it and what are they using it for? So the 3D printing lab um, is mostly an output center. So students don't necessarily walk up to the printers and use them. We do have interns who do that, but it's any anyone on campus. So any student can submit a file through uh, the lab and they'll attach their file. They'll make a request for the material, the color, and uh, we'll print it out for them for the cost of the material, which is typically what what we charge. Um, so it's like the best printing deal ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's really cool. So um, we'll do that. And it's the same for faculty or staff. It doesn't really matter what your major is or if you're undecided or if you're a business major or if you are just someone who's super like a music major or someone who's super interested in, you know, 3D printing something because it's cool and you want to just give it a shot. Probably the the heaviest users that we get in the lab are um, art students and engineering students. You know, those are the, the two heaviest hitters, I would say. And they're also the students that we have mostly in the minor. So we do have a minor, um, which is called Digital Design and Fabrication. And that's run by Aaron Nelson, who's um, my colleague in the center. And he's, he's awesome. Um, and they go through and they learn how to design objects. And as they go through that, they're required, of course, to print these objects out and use it for whatever application they'd like. So it's not necessarily, oh, you have to do this for a class, but you know, you can definitely use it for um, you know, a personal project or things of that nature. I have to laugh. Like I'm just picturing like the stoner kid walking in like trying mm-hmm. to print a bong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a no print list that is on there. Um, we worry a little bit about the health of some, some students who might try that. Um, you know, weapons are also a no-go for students, so that's definitely another thing. Um, I'm sure that's a list that grows, like continues to grow as, as this goes. It's pretty hilarious. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of these things where we're like, you know, Aaron and I are, are both from the art world. And so we'll, we'll see these things coming through and we're like, guys, come on, who do you think we are? Like, (laughs) we're not, we're not blind. We have to screen everything that you print. Like, (laughs) you know, especially if like you label it as such, like, you know, (laughs) I mean, that helps make our life a little bit easier, but it's one of those things where we're trying to, print productive things, as we say. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So what was it like for you coming from the art world into now like this like half art, half engineering world? It was a little bit weird, um, but in ways that I would not have expected, I guess. When I first started here, you know, I had done six years at this point of straight uh, art education or, you know, metals uh, training. So I had been surrounded by people who were all artists and they had been practicing their craft for six plus years. And so you'd ask questions about different techniques or, you know, the meaning of different curvatures or, you know, a lot of these kind of soft 
squishy questions, as I like to call them. Then coming over into a more engineering sort of technical area, it was interesting because no one seemed to really think the way that I thought in the sense that, you know, you, you see you see an object on the table or you see something that someone wants to reproduce and I'm thinking of it in a very tactile manner. Um, and then, you know, and, and about like the form and how does one form flow into another? Like, what are the ergonomics of something? And a lot of times we would get either clients or students or professors who would come in and they'd show us what they want to make. And, and a lot of those things weren't considered which are some of the first things that I would consider. So, you know, I had uh, a student who wasn't one of my students, but just a student on campus who printed something, like it it was a housing for something, and it looked like a box with like a couple of holes so that you can have the electronics poking out of it or access to the um, electronics. And I was like, what is that? Like if I'm looking at it, I can't intuitively (laughs) tell what it is. He was just like, oh, it's a remote. And I'm like, how is that a remote? Like, it doesn't fit in your hand. It's too wide. It's too thin in other aspects. And, you know, it was just one of these things where it's the not only the, the function, but the form was always a question for me. Yes. And, and then the human interaction as well. I mean, correct. I mean, I clearly come from a biased, human-centered mindset, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like I just read an article, an article about design yesterday that talks about like, long story short, it was an article about don't ask users what they want because they're not going to give you very reliable information back. And then absolutely, it's sort of like then having to take those insights and translate them. And, you know, you might get, you might get something where everyone's like, I want a remote that's bigger. But then if you make this like, eight by 10 television remote. Yes, the buttons are bigger. Yes, that 85-year-old person or that 85-year-old population that you talk to, they're satisfied. They've got the buttons bigger, but now can they even hold the damn object in their hand because it's, you know, bigger than four pieces of toast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and that's something that is, is something, like I, I never expected that to be an issue. In a way, I was kind of spoiled coming from art because I was like, oh, this is how everyone thinks. Okay, this is great. Um, we'll have no problems. <laughs> so, <laughs> or I'd be describing something or have a drawing or a sketch of something. And I would just, you know, see how people, how a lot of people struggle with uh, envisioning these items three-dimensionally um, or kind of taking that, that leap of, you know, it's a squiggle on a piece of paper um, or it's like a rendering on a computer and they still can't quite generate that form in their mind. But I do think, you know, one of the, one of the things that is interesting to me is, and is that like part of the perspective that I think I bring um, is that I'm a short person, um, Amen. But, <laughs> but I'm the second tallest person in my household. My dad is the tallest. He's, you know, five, five, ten-ish. But I grew up with him, my mom, my sister, and my grandmother. And my mom, my sister, and my grandmother are all under four foot eight. So I tower over them. At <laughs> and, four foot eleven. Exactly. <laughs> so so a lot of life growing up was how do we fix something to work for us? 
right? Because oh, they yeah. don't, right? So yes. I never felt like I was a short person because I was always the person who was like, oh, you're tall. You can reach something on the top shelf. And well, you know, we're, we're right at that cusp, right? Right, exactly. Where petite, where petite clothing stops. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if you're under that, yeah, what do you do? Right. And so, you know, my, my sister is incredibly, um, she's a, a very powerful and intimidating person, I think, <laughs> but she's, she's very short and she's, you know, very, very petite. And, um, a lot like, again, growing up, we had to hem everything. So we had to shorten all of our pants, take things in, things like that. And, you know, you, you look for shoes, right? And shoes are the hardest thing because you can't really adjust them, not too well. So you go to, um, to buy a pair of shoes and my mom and my sister are looking in the kids section, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those things where it becomes, it becomes a challenge, but it also gives you a little bit of creativity in the sense of, well, if I could make this fit me, right? Or if I could make this fit someone who has the opposite problem, who's, you know, Uh, six foot six and they can't bend down and it hurts their back when they're doing dishes and stuff like that. Like how do you um, design for that? And I think that it gives us a lot of sympathy and a lot of way of kind of empathizing with these issues and being able to kind of see the world from different perspectives. Yes. That has to be so valuable in your work. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting to see how, that gets applied, especially because I do work in a field that is mostly male dominated. I feel like a lot of times the person that they're designing for is, you know, someone who's average height, probably male, who has X, Y, or Z requirements. And in a way, my bias is to always go towards smaller people. So everything that I design tends to be entirely too small. (laughs) And I usually (laughs) need to make it quite a bit larger. But I think that that gives a really good contrast and working on on these teams and working with these people who have a very different perspective builds a better product, a better object, regardless of of what that object is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm listening to what you're describing and thinking holy shit, she must be so valuable, right? Because not only are you bringing this sense of empathy and, you know, I heard you use the word ergonomics. So you're, you're thinking about like, how does a human interact with this or how does this fit with the situation this person's describing or what the, what the use is supposed to be? So you're kind of thinking of it through those lenses, but then also it's so valuable to have just diverse opinions in any process like you're describing. So you're also bringing a female perspective. You're bringing a shorter perspective. <laughs> you're bringing, like, I feel like you're probably a secret weapon in the environment that you're working in. <laughs> it's Or not so secret weapon. Because I feel like <laughs> when I met Dan he was definitely a cat evangelist. Like as soon as I mentioned I had the podcast and the type of women I talk with, he was like, I have someone for you. And then proceeded to talk about you for like probably 15 minutes straight. Oh God. (laughs) No, it was great. Um, I definitely, I I feel like I have a very good uh, 
good group of people that I work with here who are very supportive, which is awesome. But I think that, you know, I have a, like most people, I have a hard time kind of seeing the the value that I bring. In a lot of ways, I'm kind of like, I almost feel like, um, I almost feel like I should, like I'm hiding somehow and people haven't realized that I'm just like playing and having a good time. And so, <laughs> so I'm like, don't let them in on the secret. Um, <laughs> So I feel like I'm a secret in that sense, but I do think that I think because I I do tend to be a little bit more um, quiet and a little bit more observant that I tend to surprise people. And you know, one one of the things that one of the projects that was kind of interesting was we were working with this company who needed this mold, basically to be digitized or recreated. And this is, again, one of those times where they were this engineering company and they were like, you absolutely must scan this. Like, that's how this is going to be done. And my response was, that's not how I would do it, which I don't hate scanning. It's just almost never the answer. (laughs) Um, Just to preface with that. But it was a situation where they were very insistent that it had to be scanned um, that it needed to be accurate and all of these things. And my response was, well, you know, we should really, I really don't think that that's the best uh, application or the best approach for this. And I got a little bit stubborn because they were very insistent, you know, they insisted a lot. So what ended up happening was I ended up basically creating it digitally through certain measurements and, um, taking care of of just observing how the different curves were in, in this form and then sent them that. And I think that they were a little bit surprised. And I've found this has happened to me more than once where I'll give someone something that they they're like, this is never going to work. And, you know, I really, I really strongly think that this should be done a certain way and you're not going to do it that way. So it can't possibly work. And then like, we'll send them the object or the scan or the file or whatever it is in that particular case. And then we don't hear from them. And, you know, I'll sit there and I'll be like, oh, I don't know, maybe like, maybe I did really mess that up. Like maybe that went horribly, horribly wrong. But then typically a couple of months go by and then we'll hear from them and they'll be like, so uh, it worked, but could you maybe do that for the next 20 of these things? <laughs> but it's never like, it's never like, oh, wow, <laughs> thanks for, you know, suggesting that or, you know, like, wow, that did work. But it's always like this kind of like, I'm just going to very quietly kind of slide it into the conversation that it did in fact work but quickly move on to other things. <laughs> well, I, I heard humble pie is kind of bitter sometimes. Sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I found that, especially when when it's being served to you by someone who's a relatively young, short girl in an industry that's not very present with them, it's a little challenging. Well, um, and I was going to ask you that because I feel like there are very few people – that would get this question. Have you found in working environments and especially working environments that are male heavy and 
also we're making a whole bunch of generalizations here. Absolutely. (laughs) But from, from my personal experience, I decreasingly so as I'm in my forties now, but tend to look pretty young, like in how I dress and how my hair is cut. I get a lot of the times like people seem very surprised when I say I'm in my 40s or, you know, when they tell me you wouldn't remember, you know, a rotary phone or things like that. And it was like, no, certainly would. (laughs) Um, But thank you. Do you feel the same young lady syndrome that I have felt over the years? I I would say so. Um, You know, I'm, I just turned 30 and I still get carded when I go places and I, I tend to look younger than I am. <laughs> but the small, I feel like that, being 4'11", Absolutely, I feel like it translates to young and inexperienced. For people oh, absolutely. Sometimes. Yes. And that's the thing that when, you know, it, it does turn into a lot of uh, patronizing conversation. Um, again, not with everyone. Um, and I do get it. I actually get that both from men and women who tend to kind of, it's almost like they, they want to educate me on something, which is fine. And I'm, I'm not opposed to that, but it also, I, I am an adult and you don't need to talk to me like, um, you know, a 12 year old kid. Um, mm-hmm. One thing is that my sister who's shorter than I am, she actually has it way worse. <laughs> she is um, in the process of becoming a doctor and so she sees patients. Whoa. Yeah. She's a very smart cookie and she's up in Boston. And so she's studying or practicing actually at this point. I don't want to, I, I want to say she's a resident, but I don't want to get that wrong. She's probably going to murder me, but, um, <laughs> she's, but she's treating people at this point. Oh yeah. Yeah. Either with some supervision or on her own. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so, um, so just the other day she was telling me that she was treating a patient and she was doing a rotation in front of the entire rotation. The patient says hello to everyone and then looks at her and she goes, hello, little one. My <laughs> <And then laughs> sister was like, I'm an adult, guys. Like, don't do that. You know, and so she was presenting and she was like, well, I guess that's how that's going to go. So, yeah, I definitely, I mean, I don't, not nearly as short as her. And I think that that does translate as not appearing quite as young as her, but I am definitely, um, I do get that. I do get mistaken for being a student a lot, which I think is a little bit weird because if you stand me next to someone who's like 20, there's a huge difference, except in height. That's pretty much the only difference. But it's a little weird when, you know, or if you go to a conference and, you know, someone leans over to your boss and they're like, why did you bring a student with you? <laughs> yeah. the boss has to explain, she's not a student. I actually work with her. <laughs> she runs the lab. Right. <laughs> so it's one of, one of those situations. Yeah, I remember way back in the day when I was still working in finance and working in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy. So going to a company that was either about to file and sort of having to figure out what is going on And do we have to file bankruptcy or can we do this another way? And I remember being like a senior associate and it was a lawyer for the opposition. So I think there was already like some intimidation factor happening there. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was like, I was the fool who had the presentation on my computer 
which is like never who you want to be leading up to an important meeting because everybody's last minute changes. It's, you know, it's pretty much a working document until like someone presents that slide, mm-hmm. um, which I always hated and mm-hmm. stressed me out. And like this lawyer strolls over and comes up and I'm like desperately trying to get all these last minute changes in and says, young lady, would you go get me a cup of coffee? Oh, God. And I just remember thinking, I want to throw this table at you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which was, I was definitely hotter headed in my 20s. I've, I've since kind of, I've, I've cruised down and meditation <laughs> has been very helpful. But I guess what's been helpful for you when you encounter these moments? Have you found any good workarounds? I haven't found it a ton. Um, I've gotten really good at just kind of, or I think very good, um, better, I guess I'll say, at just kind of letting it pass. Generally, I'm a calmer person when it comes to to things like this, because I know in the end, like what I said with the whole scanning of that mold, like in the end, it's going to work out. And in the end, I'll kind of be proven right or justified or, or whatever. But I, I guess it's kind of like, in the back of my mind, whenever I'm in a situation like that, I'm like, this is going to make a really good story one day. <laughs> I think a lot of times about my, even just like my family I come from a lot of very um, type A, uh, determined and stubborn women. And just thinking about the stories that I've heard from them, it's really calming and kind of reassuring to be like, well, they survived that. And that was in like the 40s or the 20s. So you know, this is, <laughs> this is better for sure. Um, and it'll just make for a really good story. Yeah. It's, it's always hard. I feel like each situation is so like, you have to know the person that you're dealing with and like, Absolutely. how can I turn this around? So I'm always listening for those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the other questions, especially cause this is a show about burnout Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm making a big assumption here, so kick it back at me if I'm off base at all. Mm-hmm. But I feel like as I'm listening to your story and like the work environment that you're in, I hear that you're this sort of artist in a world of engineering and you're a woman in a room of men. And I'm hearing you talk about the Cuban members of your family. So I assume that at least half of you is Cuban. Yep. <laughs> and right. And like... Again, diversity among mm-hmm. science is still an it, right across any of the STEAM sort of realms mm-hmm. is usually an issue. So I'm hearing this like theme of like fish out of water. Oh yeah. Has have you ever burned out? Is it related in any way, shape, or form? Um, I have burned out, but I think that um, I burn out or burnt out in a very different way than most. In a way, I kind of appreciated being a fish out of water and and jumping out of the art world, um, at least initially. And, you know, it it gave me a chance to kind of take a step back because I got, one thing that I tend to do is I get very um, invested and uh, engrossed in whatever it is that I'm doing. And so after going through six years of art school, I was so deep in it and I was so engrossed in it that it was, it was almost like it was consuming. So being able to kind of step out and 
work in a field like this where it is, you know, you are on the outside to a degree looking in, but you can still practice artistic tendencies in, in relationship. So it's like a, a job tangential, I guess, like creativity tangent. I think that being able to take that step back really helps at work in general. I tend to, when I do tend to get overwhelmed, it does tend to be because I spread myself a little bit too thin and I try to do too much. And in those cases, um, I find that the people I work with are like, you know, you, you can shoulder some of that on us. And that's awesome. And it's great that they can do that or that I can, you know, kind of spread that weight. But for myself, I like to, like when I go home um, to kind of de-stress or kind of just relax, I do a lot of just physical uh, creativity, like craft or art. Um, I'm kind of an old lady, like an old soul on the inside. So I do a lot of knitting, a lot of crocheting. Um, I do hand sewing. But then I also have a wood lathe that I work on. I make a lot of my own furniture, stuff like that. So I'd like to do things that are just completely outside of whatever it is I'm touching at work. And it gives me this this little bit of a recharge where I can kind of take a step back and not get quite as burnt out. How do you think that's recharging you, right? Because like for me on the outside listening, I'm hearing you make things all day and then you go home and make things. What's the link or what's the difference there? So I think that the difference to me is that I'm making stuff for people who I don't necessarily know. Um, or I'm kind of by, by thinking about these things that I'm making for people at work or problems I'm solving, it's, it's someone else's problem. It's someone else's project. And so I tend to take on their perspective and really think of these issues as like, well, you know, how is this person going to produce this? Is it going to be plastic injected or machined? And I start kind of going down these rabbit holes of, how do I solve these problems for these people? And when I go to make stuff at home, I I can solve those questions, you know? I can say, well, I want to make, you know, this drawing for my sister, um, and I know how I'm going to do it. And I can reach a resolution. I can see the entire structure of the project and go from the initial concept all the way to its conclusion. And I don't have these questions kind of outlying of how is this going to be produced and these extra stresses of working on a project but never actually like finishing it, right? Because you hand it off to to the designer, the creator, whoever it is, and then it it lives its life, whatever that may be. But you you never finish it, you know? Yes, I know very well. I I think the parallel for me is in coaching women for years, I would typically work with most of my clients for either six or like nine months. At the beginning, it was sort of like we'd go through the process and then I would really encourage people like, let's not renew right away or let's put a single session on the calendar like three months from now or six months from now 
you know, so that you can check in and you feel like you're not just like, okay, done. I'm going to throw you out of the nest now. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, they go live their life and it was only like the grace and goodness of, you know, a handful of my clients that like came back, you know, like a couple years later. And, you know, sometimes it was a letter or sometimes I ran into them or sometimes they just ask like, hey, can I, can I set up a phone call or can we set up a session? And they would loop back and they're like, so yeah, remember when I was experiencing this and we sort of talked through that problem and broke it down and came up with some better habits or a different way to approach it? Yeah, that led to these like five things happening for me over the next two years. You know, and it could, it was anything from like buying their first home or meeting their now husband and, or, you know, changing careers or whatever that thing was. But if they didn't come back and circle back to me, it was a mystery sometimes and still is. Like I I think a lot about clients, you know, something, I'll see something or hear something and it'll remind me of one of those conversations. And then I think to myself like, oh, I wonder where they are. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I can see on Facebook what's happened or get a little snippet. Mm -hmm. But you, you don't get to see the full trajectory or the realization of like what you contributed to it. Right. And it, it becomes this, like, I try not to put so much of myself into projects because it, it, I do get very invested and very involved. And even if it is very like internal, like I'm just internally questioning like, Oh, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? And so to kind of sit and think about where do these objects go to, or, you know, did the project get abandoned or did it get picked up or is it in production somewhere? You don't necessarily, some projects you do hear back from, and there are some clients that we have continued to work with, you know, they'll, they'll keep us in the loop from time to time, but it is very much like you're just kind of sitting and you never know who's going to walk through the door or pick up the phone and call you. I, I can't imagine that with people because I would be entirely, <laughs> entirely too invested at that point. Um, you have to learn your professional boundaries, like at least in that kind of work. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I always use the, the visual of a chalkboard. So whatever I'm doing before a client session, it was always like, okay, that's what I'm doing. And if life was going well that day, great. And if life was going poorly that day and, you know, I spilled my lunch on the floor and numerous other things happened. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have to be fully present with that person, right? Like even the podcasts, Mm -hmm. I always used to go back to like chalkboards in classrooms when that used to exist, right? (laughs) But like, you know, when when it was freshly cleaned and like super black and like Mm -hmm. pristine, I always would use that metaphor. So like whatever noise or static or like my own life was happening, it was like, okay, I'm about to get on the phone now, clean chalkboard. And then like at the end of that conversation, it was like, okay, time to clean the chalkboard again my clients had to do their thing. Like I couldn't mom them, right? Right. On them to do the work between the sessions. I'm just here to hold the structure in place. And so like you do have to learn those boundaries in the kind of work that I'm doing. But I will say 
I volunteer as a mediator. And I was tra- a friend of mine not that long ago was like, okay, I get that you want to practice that and build that skill, mm-hmm. right? Because especially in something like design, you need to be able to talk to all different diverse stakeholders. Mm-hmm. But I realized the other thing that was super satisfying when it comes to people is when you, especially like at small claims court, you might only have like 20 minutes or half an hour before the judge is like, all right, is this going to work or not? Right. I could go home and it's like either they settled and they came to some sort of resolution or they don't. Either way, I win because my job was to hold the process, Mm -hmm. but it's really nice having that like binary, did it close? Did it not close? Right. And then I can go home and it was just like, ah, man, that's really nice. (laughs) Like (laughs) like, I experienced three things finishing involving people Mm -hmm. in two hours or less. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's it's a nice feeling whenever you get that like conclusion. Yeah. Um, it's like a little reward at the end. Um, and so sometimes it becomes, you know, it be- if you get really invested on projects and things like that, it, it does become this thing where you're like, well, I concluded my part, but what happened with the rest of it? Like, where's the rest of the story? It's almost like watching a TV show and then like not watching the last 10 minutes of every episode. It's like... So frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, it would be like watching Law and Order and never seeing like a case close. Exactly. So Kat, I feel like you've shared so much with all of us today. Thank you for being such an awesome teacher. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I have one more question for you. Sure. What do you most want LaVital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? I guess what I would say is, in general, um, life presents itself with lots of weird opportunities. And I think taking advantage of those whenever possible, when you're like mentally able to, I think is, is a great thing to do. That's kind of how I ended up where I am. But also just kind of being observant. A lot of what I do and a lot of what I've done is say yes to things that terrify me in a very like non-terrifying way. <laughs> like, yeah, no one's throwing you off a building. No, no. It's like, it's like, do you want to work on this project? And I'm like, oh man, that seems like a really big project. I'm really nervous about it. I really don't know if it'll pan out. And, you know, I'll hear myself saying yes before I really thought it through. And those tend to be the more interesting projects. And those tend to be the ones that really, um, you know, kind of push the boundaries of, of what we can do. And, you know, and by being observant in those moments and kind of taking in as much as I can, I think it helps inform the future projects that we work on. So I really, you know, I think being observant and being willing to, willing to say yes to things that kind of scare you a little. Yeah. I mean, I think all the way back to our, I think, initial question in this conversation today, and you started talking about, I went on this long car ride as someone, I'm guessing, you say shy, but I would also guess introverted, correct? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, like the idea of being trapped in a car for hours in each direction and then bombarded by total strangers at a state fair probably was the last thing you wanted to do with your weekend. Oh, absolutely. It was was kind of my worst nightmare. And (laughs) 
that's what I mean by terrifying. Like to, to someone else, that might not be a big deal. But to me, I was like, oh boy. Well, and you said yes. And I think your story and your example, like how different would your life have been if you, if you didn't take that trip? Exactly. Yeah. So an amazing example and thank you for sharing your story, and especially as you describe yourself as such a, a shy and probably also kind of private person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so grateful to hear it and to learn and to hear a bucket list item is in the realm of reality for me. <laughs> um, you've truly made my day personally. But awesome. I, I think the listeners are going to take away a lot from this conversation as well. Great. Awesome. Hey there, it's Kara again. Thank you for tuning in. If you found Kat's story and the work that she's doing over at the HVAMC super interesting like I did, you can find out more over at newpaltz.edu slash 3D, or I dropped a link into the show notes as well. And you can find those over at levitalcoresalon.com, L-E-Vital-C-O-R-P-S salon.com. If you dug this podcast or what Kat is doing, please show your support by sharing this podcast with one human you know and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to Dan Friedman, who I met at the Hudson Valley Future event, for connecting me and Kat and making this whole podcast possible. Thanks, Dan. And I also want to thank my producer, Craig Snyder, my assistant, Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone, and High Dials for the theme song. It takes a village, people. And for now, I hope all of you are staying safe, healthy, happy, and really sane out there. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.